Good evening, listeners. Welcome to the first ever broadcast of MRAG Radio. Today's topic, the Cold War heats up and the presidential recordings from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, for some brief background before we delve too far in. It all started on Tuesday, October 16, 1962, when it was brought to President Kennedy's attention that the construction of nuclear weapons was underway in Cuba. Now, this might seem out of the, out of the concern of the U.S., However, due to the brewing conflict between the Soviets and the U.S. and Kennedy's bold motto that the U.S. would pay any price and bear any burden to ensure the survival and the success of liberty, a meeting was called for immediately. Despite the repetitive concerns brought forth by the Republican Party, Kennedy had refused to see the threat composing itself in Cuba until it was almost too late, and after his last failed attempt at infiltrating Cuba during the incident at Bay of Pigs, Kennedy was already had one foot in the grave. In efforts to prevent further tarnishing Kennedy's reputation, a small and secretive team was formed known as XCOM. This team was frequently meeting over the course of the crisis to converse and debate over the options and solutions for this sensitive situation. Through a 12-day negotiation between XCOM team and the Soviet leader Khrushchev, a compromise sacrificed the U.S. missile sites in Turkey on the Soviet nuclear construction in Cuba. A solution was finally found that left Cuba uninvaded and that narrowly avoided a nuclear war. Okay, now that the stage is set, let's break down what's happening behind closed doors, specifically in the White House. In order to get a proper analysis of what went down with Cuba, we must look into the presidential tapes. Presidential tape recordings became popular during Nixon's term with the Watergate scandal in the 1970s. The presence of been taping conversations from within the Oval Office since, pres- since Roosevelt's term in the 1930s. And yet the taping system installed the summer before the missile crisis incident, and the only people who knew about it were his brother Robert, Evelyn Lincoln, and the two Secret Service agents that installed it before maintenance. Over the course of the 12-day missile crisis, Kennedy recorded over 40 hours of his XCOM team's discussions where they discussed military and diplomatic affairs. The existence of the tapes became public in 1973 during the Watergate scandal in order to analyze the reasoning applied to prevent the nuclear conflict. These tapes revealed that Kennedy lacked a rigid agenda and the meetings seemed to be lacking in focus and efficiency. These tapes have brought forth a series of questions from scholars, historians, and Americans alike as everyone strives to comprehend the decisions that brought us so close to a nuclear catastrophe. Today, we will help break down a few questions that have been brought to light. To start off, many have drawn concerns on the diverse stances taken for and against military reaction to the installment of Cuban missiles. Through the tapes, we can see how the members of the XCOM and President Kennedy originally reacted to the decision concerning if the U.S. should prepare to invade Cuba. For example, one of the more apparent opinions on the matter was President Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General at the time. He declared that the U.S. military should invade Cuba because, as he directly states, if you're going to get into it all, we should just get into it and get it over with and take our losses. Robert Kennedy presented his stance with the attitude that they should get the situation over with and deal with any consequences that come with their actions, then move on. In contrast, Robert S. McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, stated that they should write down all the plans, then list the probable consequences before coming to a decision. He specifically targeted Robert Kennedy's stance to defend his own with the claim, the consequences of these actions have not been thought through clearly. The one that the Attorney General just mentioned is illustrative of that. Moreover, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Maxwell Taylor, also argued against the invasion. However, he wanted to try and eliminate as effectively as possible every weapon that could strike against the United States as well. Furthermore, Taylor urged President Kennedy not to set a schedule until all the intelligence that could be gathered regarding the best possible option was. 
After hearing everyone's proposals, President Kennedy concluded the meeting with his eager words. I don't want to waste any time. I just think we ought to be ready to do something, even if we decide not to do it. Through the rigorous debates, the XCOM team came to one solution for the crisis in Cuba, an air U.S. aerial strike. Now, luckily this idea was shot down profusely, but it is important to look at all the different perspectives of the proposal. For example, Rusk and President Kennedy were the main supporters of the airstrike. Rush strongly believed that there is a possibility, only a possibility, that Khrushchev might realize that he's got to back down on this. Whereas Thompson, McNamara, and George W. Ball refuted this idea. McNamara specifically argued that if there was an airstrike without preliminary discussion with Khrushchev, he thinks that the U.S. might assume that they have killed several hundred Soviet citizens. Having killed several hundred Soviet citizens, what kind of response does Khrushchev have open to him? And George Ball goes as far to compare George Ball goes as far to compare a preemptive strike to the attack on Pearl Harbor, claiming this type of assault without warning fits the actions of the Soviets, not the US. But Kennedy counters this idea of a twenty four hour warning with his paranoia that Khrushchev will strike elsewhere if given time and motivation. Finally, the XCOM team settles on Thompson's suggestion of a blockade against military weapons in Cuba, specifically offensive ones, and this idea serves to be a temporary solution that prevents thousands of deaths and destruction. Another concern also derived from the response of Soviet officers. One in particular was why the XCOM remained reluctant to respond publicly to Khrushchev's second communication. They did not want to respond publicly to the second form of communication because they did not know of the legitimacy and true intention of the message or how Turkey would respond. As McNamara argued, if you go through that letter to a layman, it looks to be full of holes. Due to the lack of confidence, the majority of XCOM preferred to keep the heat on. Moreover, distress concerning the Turks' reaction to Khrushchev's most recent letter was circulating. XCOM did not want to discuss anything outside the Cuban situation. But focusing only on Cuba, the deal to be struck with Russia was pulling U.S. missiles from Turkey, who may help to the Allied nation and leaving them hanging. So to respond publicly to Khrushchev's most recent message was to inform Turkey of the deal that Russia had proposed to the U.S. The lack of consultation would anger Turkey. Therefore, XCOM preferred to respond to Khrushchev's first message publicly and to keep the second one a private matter to prevent any further international opposition. Many scholars also became concerned at the hierarchy, or lack thereof, within the XCOM meetings. By analysis of the presidential tapes, it is revealed that these meetings are held in a non-hierarchical environment, where Kennedy is no longer maintaining the leadership position. Throughout the tapes, it is apparent that the older and more experienced advisors strive to maintain order and proper hierarchy by repetitively addressing Kennedy with a formal title, Mr. President. However, this sense of order is refuted when Kennedy himself chooses to address his advisors by first name base or even nicknames, setting an extremely informal environment. This environment is further fed as the advisors gradually stop advising and begin instructing. The meetings are originally meant to provide the president with guidance in the, in the harder times. But towards the later meetings, the advisors have become much more aggressive and controlling with their thoughts and ideas. This seems, this seems to be apparent when the conversation begins to get heated between President Kennedy and his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. It seems that regardless of the workplace environment and high set stakes, some sense of family familiarity cannot be overlooked. Furthermore, without the sense of authority that Kennedy is meant to provide, the conversations frequently drift from the issues at hand, the Cuban Missile Crisis, to other altercations, such as 
Turkey and or Berlin. Oddly enough, more often than not, President Kennedy himself is to blame for the rapid su change in subject as he frequently concerns himself with issues that are not urgent or frankly existent. The long decision-making process was done in secrecy, which fuels the debate on the rationality of the choices made. Were they based on statistics and logistics, or simply out of fear and paranoia? Well, through the analysis of the presidential tapes, it is clear that the ex-com and President Kennedy determined the actions they would make without strategic reasoning, but rather through the inclination they established with their own insecurity and panic. When making a decision, XCOM and President Kennedy often failed to discover any alternative options to the risky ones they were forced to deal with, so they often ruled with the attitude, what's the worst that will happen if we decide to do this? The rush method of decision-making is clear in Source 1, when Robert Kennedy states regarding the possible invasion of Cuba, we should just get into it and get it over with and take our losses. He displays the lack of care, which was often contributed when the idea to discuss the consequences of their very significant and life-altering decisions was not heard. While the XCOM team is debating the situation behind closed doors, the American people were left with minimal information and a great amount of fear. A widespread panic had begun to set in at the possibility of a nuclear war, and the American people began taking preparations into their own hands. Stockpiling and bunkering became frequent activities in place of typical hobbies, and to this day, many older Americans can still recall the bone-chilling fear that took hold of the U.S. Now, there's only so much I can say on this topic, having not experienced it firsthand, so why don't we hear the story from one of the many Americans that have a recollection of the events that took place. Well, in the military, I was a tech sergeant. I received the Purple Heart, nine air medals, and a presidential unit commendation. And I was one of the 12 cadre that set up the National Photographic Interpretation Center. I was the chief information officer and my responsibility was to prepare the briefing boards and the briefing notes that were used to brief the President, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and others. This is the photograph, that, the first photograph of the missile sites that was used to brief President Kennedy. I see Russian military tents here, and then I see other activity in this area. This is the third site that was shown to President Kennedy, and we indicated that this possibly could turn into a missile site. Because of the wide radius turns, that's a signature of a missile site. Because the missiles are 65 feet long and you can't go to a corner and just turn. It has to be a wide radius turn. Now this created quite a stir among the military because it meant that the second site, an intermediate range ballistic missile site, could hit every major target in the United States except the extreme northwest. This was the first time that aerial photography was displayed at the United Nations Security Council. And it had an enormous impact, not only on the United States, but on the world, that the Russians had been lying all the time. But a crisis period, to me, Black Saturday was a day that I'll always remember. That morning, we get word that the, uh, they're flying, they're shooting at our low altitude planes. Khrushchev had been seen in three days. We'd gone to DEFCON 2. And that afternoon, I'd been told that to get ready for possible movement to the underground. And I called my wife and I said, if I called you again, put the kids in the car and start out for Missouri. Because I was convinced that we were going to be bombing Cuba on, on Monday. On Sunday, 
get word through from foreign broadcasts, just one sentence, the Russians were going to remove the missiles. And we looked at the photography, we didn't see any indication that they were pulling the launchers off of the pads. And it wasn't until the next day, President Kennedy said, well, give them another day. And the next day we could see that they were moving the, uh, but Saturday was a day I'll never forget because I thought sure that we would be bombing the sites and then the possibility of exchange of nuclear weapons between the United States and the, and the United and, and the Soviet Union. Day and I'll never forget. Black Saturday. It was black. All right. Well, now that we've picked this subject down to the bare bones, it's time to say goodnight. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in to MRAG Radio on the subject of the Cuban Missile Crisis.